Ever since assuming the leadership of the Justice Center for the Protection of People with Special Needs in 2017, Denise Miranda has regularly made the case during her annual budget testimony that vulnerable people under the state's care are safer than before the 10-year-old oversight agency began operating. But when asked during this year's budget hearings to weigh in on the quality of care provided to New Yorkers with special needs and the numbers that might explain the Justice Center's alleged effectiveness, Miranda fell back on familiar talking points about actions undertaken over the years and didn't offer objective data to back up claims of improved safety. The answer is reflective of the challenge the Justice Center has of articulating its effectiveness, which Miranda often frames, including in her interview for this series, in terms of staff prohibited from working with vulnerable people, completed investigations, standardized definitions of abuse, a centralized reporting system, and systemic changes they recommended. It's impossible to prove a negative, right? We don't know what would be um, if the Justice Center didn't exist. But our priority has been education, prevention, and obviously accountability for individuals who are committing incidents of abuse and neglect. The analysis of stakeholders is far from as cut and dry, with longtime Justice Center skeptic Mike Alvaro, president and CEO of the Cerebral Palsy Association of New York State, arguing it's been a waste of time. From a public policy perspective, the Justice Center... I mean, it's apple pie and Chevrolet. It makes sense. I mean, who would say we wouldn't want to improve the quality of programs and services for people with uh, disabilities? Who wouldn't want to say we want to make things better and make things safer and root out those bad actors? That that sounds absolutely great. I've not seen one metric that would suggest that they've improved the quality of life for people with disabilities. Glenn Liebman, CEO of the Mental Health Association of New York State, who serves on the Justice Center's advisory committee, originally didn't believe a new watchdog was needed and now sees it as a valuable resource. I think as time has evolved, it's very clear that they do have a very defined mission that they try to work within the confines of working with state agencies, which is not always an easy thing to do because state agencies already exist. They already have systems in place. And all of a sudden, this outside entity is coming in and saying, well, you know, maybe you should be doing this, doing that. Well, we've been doing it a certain way for many, many years. So there's that push and pull that went on. But I think they've, after a decade, they sort of evolved into recognizing that the Justice Center can be helpful more than hurtful to agencies. And while the Justice Center has a treasure trove of quantitative data that it collects, most numerical trends don't automatically bespeak the quality of oversight. For example, over the last five years, the number of substantiated abuse and neglect cases has been trending down from 3,706 in 2018 to 3,217 in 2022. That could mean fewer problems are occurring, but it could also be emblematic of shifts in the number of people under the state's care, the timing of investigations, or the amount of complaints received. In 10 years, the numbers have been very consistent, Dave, with respect to the percentages of cases that are substantiated, the type of cases that are substantiated, and their category level. I think that whenever we see a decrease in reporting, you know, we ask ourselves that important question, right? Is there a failure to report? And we do look at the providers, and we have identified providers where it's a bit peculiar that there's been zero reports, right, in the time period. And with those providers, we will dig a little bit deeper, right? We have authority to approach providers and to go do audits and to really dig into why are we seeing no reports here? And sometimes they're logical answers. Sometimes the census is two or three individuals who are receiving care there. Sometimes we're able to uncover that there's a culture of non-reporting, and we can address that proactively. 
During the center's history, they have substantiated about a third of the complaints they receive, which is on par with the rate of substantiated complaints to the child abuse hotline, a reporting tool that helped inspire the 24-7 hotline maintained by the Justice Center and credited with ensuring complaints aren't falling through the cracks. The creation of a hotline was another way, back in 2013, to streamline and standardize a disjointed reporting system, according to Clarence Sundrum, author of the 2012 state report that led to the Justice Center. That's where the idea of having a single 800 number that people could call in and say, you know, I don't know which is the right pathway to go. I'm going to call this 800 number, let them sort it out. So that was the idea behind having a hotline to deal with the reporting obligation to make it as simple as possible with as little paperwork as possible and have trained investigators at the hotline to decide what's the pathway for this particular case. Upwards of 80,000 complaints are fielded annually by about 100 Justice Center staff, although, depending on the year, about half can be unrelated to the center's oversight, such as general inquiries or grievances about food. More than 30,000 reports to the center each year stem from allegations of abuse, neglect, or other serious incidents. And it's the existence of those serious events that has prompted a legislative effort, championed by Justice Center critic Michael Carey, to require mandated reporters of abuse and neglect of vulnerable people under threat of a Class E felony to report incidents to 911 and the local district attorney, in addition to the Vulnerable Persons Central Register maintained by the Justice Center as currently required by law. The calls that go to the Justice Center aren't investigated by the Justice Center. Almost everything's investigated by the state or private agency, state or private staff that have no business investigating any criminal act or any death or anything. Uh, it's just, it's nothing what uh, the state's been telling everybody. It's not a justice center. This dramatic perspective is not illustrative of how most stakeholders in the system feel about the hotline and is not representative of the justice center's policy of only delegating investigations into minor allegations. Beth Arulis, director of disability justice litigation for the New York Civil Liberties Union, who is an advocate for survivors of the Willowbrook School and has discussed this issue with Michael Carey, says there are pros and cons to the current system, which mandates reporting to the Justice Center's hotline. I don't think that law enforcement response is generally warranted when it comes to vulnerable people as like the first responder, because that's not their training. So the concept of the hotline is a good one. It should be providing a centralized mechanism to get critical basic information, right? So it's basic information that the receiving investigator needs to make determinations about who to talk to, what level of urgency is required and the like. We did have concerns about the training levels of people who were on those hotlines. The reclassification process, I think, is a result of the fact that the folks who are on the hotline aren't necessarily the most skilled at identifying and quantifying and qualifying what kind of incident is coming at them. And of course, you need to sort the incident into right the right cue for next steps. So I do think that it's probably better to have the centralized, statewide, systemically informed repository for reporting. I think at the end of the day, the question looking at, you know, Michael Carey's perspective. And remember, 
his child was killed by staff, right? It was extreme abuse, extreme neglect. You know, they left his son in the back of a state van after they had, you know, really beaten him up, sat on him. I mean, he was a kid and you had two adults, you know, just engaging in all sorts of actions. You know, I think Michael's response that 911 is the answer is informed by his own experience with what happened to his son. Um, And it doesn't reflect sort of the broader, you know, day-to-day indignities that really are acts of abuse and neglect um, that need to be processed. Additionally, if there is an ongoing emergency that is reported to the Justice Center's hotline, Denise Miranda says operators are trained to direct the callers to 911. We recognize our role. We are not first responders. You know, also, every single person who is working with vulnerable populations signs a code of conduct. Right? That code of conduct uh, delineates the role and the responsibility of people who are working in the workforce. Part of that code of conduct mandates that if there is an emergency situation, to call 911. So I know the conversation of the Justice Center versus 911 exists out there, but it's not a versus question. We recognize that if there's an emergency situation, 911 is the appropriate entity. If a call comes into 911 and they realize that it involves a reportable incident, we have had police officers make reports to the Justice Center, and that is fine, and we will continue to take those reports like we take any other report. So while the hotline is widely seen as an improvement from the previous fragmented system of reporting abuse and neglect, there is some debate on whether the Justice Center, a state entity, is the right watchdog to field complaints. Echoing past concerns of the advocacy group Disability Rights New York, Beth Haroulis believes that in a perfect world, a dispassionate outsider would be responsible for looking over the state's shoulder. We were obviously, and we still are concerned, that you have a state executive agency that sort of came out of the crucible of some really horrific reporting on abuse and neglect that was taking place within OPWDD. The state always has an incentive, you know, as we saw during COVID with the nursing homes and the deaths and other congregate settings to underreport or gloss over information that makes them look bad. Denise Miranda contends that the Justice Center has historically acted independently and argues that inevitably there would be questions about the independence of a third party like a nonprofit overseer due to even tangential connections to state government like its funding. With respect to our independent authority, I'm comfortable in saying, if it's not broke, why fix it? The Justice Center is doing good work, right? We stand by the determinations that we make. We stand by our commitment to the statutory mandate. There is no need for us to duplicate efforts with a nonprofit. You know, if there was interference, and I think that's a fair question to ask, and that would be appropriate, but there hasn't been. And, you know, I think the sanctity of the work that we do, right, and the importance of the work that we do is really reflected in the fact that there has been a hands-off approach with respect to how we do our work. Accepting these claims of independence can be a challenge, though, when viewed through the lens of arrests tied to investigations initiated by the Justice Center, which, for casual observers of the system, is a metric for judging a state entity tasked with holding people accountable for abuse and neglect. From 2018 to 2022, the center substantiated nearly 17,000 complaints of abuse and neglect in state-run and private facilities, while there were fewer than 400 arrests stemming from their investigations. Potentially more alarming to someone unfamiliar with the system is that over the last three years, the center has substantiated 92 allegations of abuse and neglect connected to deaths, while only two cases have led to arrests. 
Evaluating the oversight of care this way, though, is a mistake, according to Clarence Sundrum, who spent 20 years evaluating the forerunner to the Justice Center. One of the things that gets lost in the discussion about abuse and neglect is these, these are fairly broad terms, and they encompass a very wide variety of behavior. So if you just look at statistics on abuse and neglect, it might seem like there is an epidemic of you know serious misconduct going on. If you parse it a little bit, you'll realize that the kind of image that you have in your mind when people talk about abuse, you know, serious physical assaults, people getting badly injured, sexual assaults, people being in fear of their lives or, you know, breaking bones, uh, those things happen very infrequently. The more common type of abuse is is the kind of pushing and shoving and, you know, maybe somebody uses undue force and imposing a restraint, those sorts of things that happen. And those typically don't rise to a standard of criminal behavior where a referral to a law enforcement agency might be warranted. This assessment is embodied by the fact that, of the thousands of substantiated abuse and neglect cases in recent years, about three-quarters were deemed Category 3 incidents, which is a relatively minor offense under the state's system, and one that the Justice Center views as an opportunity to respond with future preventative measures, often in the form of corrective action plans. In terms of potentially criminal offenses over the last five years, 540 incidents, about 3% of substantiated cases, fell into Category 1, which constitutes serious physical abuse, sexual abuse, or other severe conduct, with the center making in excess of 800 referrals to prosecutors during this period. Despite these system-wide and individualized responses to abuse and neglect from the Justice Center, including maintaining a staff exclusion list, Thousands of New Yorkers with special needs under the state's care continue to be mistreated every year. And, for most stakeholders, this is indicative of the limitations of a watchdog and the need to focus more on the point of care itself, which is part of the conversation started by Clarence Sundrum's 2012 report on improving the system, which has gone largely ignored, according to Beth Rulis of the New York Civil Liberties Union. Generally, the system where incidents of abuse and neglect occur happen because of stresses, happen because of frustration or lack of support or failure to train. The sort of example of staff arguing in front of people where all they hear are the angry voices, the curse words, the slurs and the like, that turns into psychological abuse. And how do you capture that in a system? How do you address what led the staff to engage in that sort of activity? And so, you know, Clarence's report called for a statewide response to naming the behaviors, identifying the harm, and then coming up with a system to protect people. The report, you know, you can read it that way. <laughs> I think Clarence intended it that way. Um, but again, you know, as it's been executed, it, it does not reflect any of that. Most notably absent from the state's response to Clarence Sundrum's report are significant steps to create a, quote, strong, well-trained, and committed direct support staff, the thousands of state and privately employed individuals actually delivering care. Instead, the state has funded direct care positions like they are insignificant entry-level jobs, notes Joe Macbeth, head of the National Alliance for Direct Support Professionals. In order to attract strong, competent people, you need to provide them with a living wage. You need to provide them with a ladder in which they can grow their career. That's not happening. It's, we're starting to do a little bit of work now with New York with a 
with a pilot uh, program that's certifying about 2,500 New York direct support professionals through OPWDD. But that, you know, it's a little bit late for that. Part of the reason that you have attracted bad actors is because they saw this as easy work, easy to get away with bad things. And the Justice Center put a, put a stop to that or, or began to put a stop to that. What we haven't followed through with is that living wage, Is are those career ladders, the occupational identity and the recognition for this work. That's not been done. Sadly, it remains an entry-level job, a job that does not pay a living wage, a job that does not receive the professional recognition that it deserves. And when things go bad, they're in the New York Times, on the front page of the New York Times, exposing to the entire world how horrible things can be for people who are vulnerable, people with disabilities. So that the Sundrum Report, I still quote from it when I give speeches. This sentiment is echoed by advocates for organizations representing providers of care, like Mike Alvaro, president and CEO of the Cerebral Palsy Association of New York State. The work we're doing, we've argued all along, is not minimum wage work. And we're under such intense scrutiny and potential criminal penalties that if someone makes a mistake in these jobs, they potentially can be censured for that. But if the DSPs warrant that kind of oversight, I don't think it lines up with the fact that the state is not paying us for the types of work that we're doing. Former Assemblymember Tom Abenanti, a Westchester County Democrat, says the state of wages means this work is considered entry-level, so good people leave quickly or it attracts less than desirable candidates. I'm not going to criticize the people who are there, but what has to happen is that we need more people with a better education, a higher quality of staff. They then could bring along the staff who's there who haven't had the education, who haven't had the, the, the uh, let's say, quality of life that we would like to see the staff have. If you're relying only on people who are getting paid minimum wage and asking them to do a job that's not a minimum wage job, you're going to get a system that is not working. It is unacceptable to say, well, the staff wasn't properly trained or the staff is not of a, a, a level where they uh, can be trained. Well, that's, that's not acceptable. You have to have staff. Uh, you have to have staff training. Everyone can be trained. But they have to work with people who are already trained if they are not. And so, you know, this system is just not working. The low wages also contribute to staffing shortages, according to Michael Seawriter, the president of the New York Alliance for Inclusion and Innovation. People aren't clicking on the apply now job. We have a 17% vacancy rate in our services system right now and a 30% turnover rate on an annual basis. And the vacancy rate rate is up 42.5% above where it was pre-pandemic levels, which we all articulated was completely unsustainable at that time. The elephant in that room, it remains, is what is New York State doing to mitigate the underlying situations that scream for more staff? and less overworking of the staff that we do have, which make the abuse and neglect that much more likely to occur. We have a situation here that's playing out where I think everyone recognizes that when you have insufficient staff, it places even more burden on those staff who do remain. And as a result, we overwork many of those individuals, most of those individuals to the point of exhaustion, 
and we're expecting perfection. And that's where humans are imper imperfect, especially when they're lacking sleep, when they're lacking rest. Um, and we have not made the types of investments necessary to address the underlying dynamics that really feed into a culture of allowing abuse and neglect to take place. Uh, we haven't really addressed that. We continue to kind of put band-aids on this rather than really getting into the into the nitty gritty of what it really takes to make sure that you have a strong, well-trained and committed direct support workforce. Workforce shortages are also a product of the Justice Center's investigations, which can sideline employees until their issues are resolved. And while 50% of cases are closed within 60 days, the benchmark set in the center's enacting legislation, cases can and do drag on, reports Bill Getman, head of the Human Services Agency, Northern Rivers Family Services, and a member of the Advisory Committee for the Justice Center. So if I had my magical wand, uh, some of the things I would recommend is we have to reduce the cycle time. If you've been accused of abuse or neglect, you can't wait 60 days. Having just said that, sometimes investigations do take time, and I understand that. But to the extent they have enough resources to make timely decisions to allow people to either get back to work or get out of the system, it would be one recommendation. So while the Justice Center can make recommendations about appropriate staffing policies, like ensuring supervision for employees, there are only so many workers to go around. And there's minimal good news on this front, as advocates have secured long overdue cost of living adjustments in the last two budgets. They haven't come close to keeping up with inflation, and the reimbursement structure remains comically outdated. Additionally, some stakeholders argue that the Justice Center's at least perceived initial emphasis on rooting out criminality above all else has had a lingering, chilling effect on the workforce. Since that time, though, especially under the current leadership, the Justice Center has tried really hard to balance that initial exclusivity <laughs> toward law enforcement with a bit more of the things that I think are reflected a bit in the uh, in the Sundrum report. But that initial trajectory toward law enforcement is really difficult to course correct, and we still live with the psychological impressions that the initial Justice Center has left on organizations and staff in its oversight. What we do want to make sure is that we are driving out direct support professionals and other people in direct support services who are not, not there for the good reasons. They are not there to be supportive of people with disabilities, to allow those individuals to pursue their dreams, to facilitate the pursuit of those dreams. We want to drive those people out. Uh, we have no interest in those people being amongst the ranks of any of these organizations or in our system, um, not the least of which is, you know, from my perspective, as the brother of someone with a developmental disability served by our services system. There's also the question of how much responsibility private operations should shoulder for their inadequate staffing levels, as their top executives can rake in hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the New York Times has previously exposed misuse of operating funds. Former Assemblymember Tom Abenanti is skeptical of some of the private voluntary providers that claim poverty and would regularly lobby him for additional funding in the budget. I believe that those who are running these agencies, these voluntary agencies, uh, need to uh, take a look at themselves and ask where are they spending their money and then have the controller's office look over their shoulder. At the same time, there are private agencies that appear to be a cut above the rest, achieving disproportionately low levels of abuse and neglect, like the Ark of Delaware County, which state officials have tried to learn from. Eric Geiser, CEO of the New York Ark, says he and his senior leadership team have attended the orientation program at the Delaware County Ark, where you don't just fill out paperwork, you also try to understand the perspective of the patients they serve. You show up, you have a wheelchair, and 
you uh, go through a day in that wheelchair, getting served by other people, getting helped, you know, with feeding and uh, some activities of daily living and things of that nature. You'll go to day programs. You'll go on the bus, all in the wheelchair. So you get, a, I think, a, a pretty interesting perspective on what it's like for an individual with a disability on a day-to-day basis. And I think it, I think it gives you an appreciation of uh, the challenges that our folks have. Because you remember, right? I, I remember being on the bus and someone did this and I, I didn't like how that felt. So I'm not going to do that as an employee in my role. And that's been a wildly successful program. I think the Dell Arts chapter has not, in many years, they have not had an incident that has required a restraint, which is pretty remarkable because sometimes people, you know, will have a bad day and have an outburst and, you know, be a danger to themselves or others. They don't seem to have those challenges there. And I would argue a great deal of it is because of the culture they've established through that program. People know what it feels like to be in the other person's shoes. That's pretty powerful. The training is part of a larger culture the ARC of Delaware County promotes as quote-unquote Shift Happens, which they explain in this 2011 promotional video. Shift Happens is the, the phrase we've coined to describe the approach we take with the people we support. However, it really is the approach we take with our employees as well. So Shift Happens is, is the culture of the organization. It really is a whole idea of helping people feel comfortable around you and wanting to reinforce people for doing really good work. To come into an environment and just be hearing in a sincere, meaningful way that you are doing wonderful. Did it get them all? Yeah. It, it just makes for such a, a monumental change in people. Good recognizing that. Look at that smile on your face. You're proud. It's built on the foundation of classic best practices in the fields of psychology, special education, and clinical social work. Positive psychology is about not focusing on disabilities and problems and fixing what's wrong with people. It's taking a whole different look at it and saying, what are you good at and what are you able to do? Focusing on that and reinforcing it. The interplay of psychology, special education, and social work produces results like significant change in people's lives, satisfaction of families, speed and depth of learning, and the absence of accidents, injuries, incidents, and allegations of abuse. But this success is not the norm across the human services sector, particularly when it comes to services for people with developmental and intellectual disabilities, which account for the majority of complaints received by the Justice Center, and have been packing vulnerable people together in quote-unquote mini Willowbrooks, according to Tom Abenanti, the former chair of the Assembly's Committee on Disabilities. There was a time when uh, the large institutions were broken down and there was hope that we would be integrating people with disabilities into our community. It did not happen. Instead, they got shunted off into group homes or got ignored. We had all kinds of great plans. We talk a lot about how we're going to have day programs for people, jobs for people. We're going to train staff, et cetera, et cetera. It is not happening. And so we're in a situation now where we have 
the highest functioning people getting services, whether they're sufficient services or not, is, is, is open to a question, but they're getting services. Then we have people in group homes whose services are getting diminished day after day after day. The pandemic broke the back of any effort to integrate them into the community, and the, we have not recovered from that. People with disabilities have the right to live in the least restrictive environment. That was the basic of the Willowbrook decision of years ago. They have a right to live their lives, have quality lives, live in the least restrictive environment, suitable for their medical and mental conditions. And that's not happening. And the Justice Center is not doing anything about that. Now, we've come a long way since Willowbrook, and we've come a long way since uh, the Danny Hakem articles, but we haven't come far enough. There are really no entities that are dedicated to representing families of people with disabilities. The advocates today, by and large, represent the voluntary agencies, and, and they see one point of view. They're advocating for people with disabilities, but they're doing it through the lens of their own institution. Michael Seawrider, the president of the New York Alliance for Inclusion and Innovation, doesn't see the system in the same bleak terms, but he also uses Willowbrook as the lens for evaluating the landscape of care. Sure, it looks very different. They are not large institutions where thousands of people are warehoused. Instead, we have moved and migrated individuals with disabilities to live in communities throughout our state. They go out into those communities, either through day programs or supported employment programs or other things. The important lesson that Willowbrook has for us is that insufficient funding leads to things like overcrowding, leads to things like understaffing, and leads to efforts to find efficiencies that essentially create a dehumanizing factor, regardless of the setting. I always found it particularly poignant where Geraldo, in his expose in 1973, talked about the terrible stench of Willowbrook. And it's not lost on me that we can smell some of that stench creeping and seeping back into our system right now in the homes and in the day programs throughout our community right now. I, I don't think we should be fooled. We're going to need to make some real significant investments in the workforce if we expect to have a high quality return on the types of supports and services that people with disabilities in the state of New York are statutorily entitled to under mental hygiene law and, and parts of the state constitution. This broad critique of the direct care system is not new to the Hochul administration, and it was part of the conversation that then-Governor Andrew Cuomo and his team refused to engage in when they turned to the Justice Center as the salve for a much bigger wound. Yet even in the creation of the Justice Center, the Cuomo administration and state lawmakers in 2012 chose to avoid delving into some persistent quagmires, like when they decided to broadly limit the new watchdog's oversight of the prison system, even though people with mental illness or developmental and physical disabilities are regularly abused behind bars, according to Scott Paltrowitz, a member of the Halt Solitary campaign. And that's particularly you know, problematic given that we have a number of vulnerable people inside of prisons in the state and jails in the state, and they are subjected to the same forms of abuse and neglect that the Justice Center is supposed to investigate in other settings and often worse, and yet they're explicitly excluded. And even more, you know, particularly problematic is that there are many 
people with special needs, people with mental health needs, people with intellectual and developmental and cognitive disabilities in prisons and jails in the state. And even they are exempted from protection from the Justice Center. And so although all of those individuals, if they're in a different state institution, are protected and the Justice Center investigates, you know, allegations of abuse for those individuals in a different state institution uh, inside of prisons and jails, the Justice Center does not do any of that and is not able to protect or even have the, the semblance of protection of people in those circumstances. Over the last decade, the Justice Center has been responsible for policing the use of special housing units for mentally ill New Yorkers, and in recent years has been tasked with overseeing 2019 reforms to solitary confinement. Paltrowitz says the center has failed to adequately highlight persistent violations of the rights of mentally ill New Yorkers who are incarcerated. One of the things the Justice Center has been recommending, we understand, is that, I mean, it's not a, it's not a bold recommendation, but that, that the prisons have to follow the law and they have to actually exclude all people who are on the OMH caseload from being placed in solitary. So that is obviously helpful compared to not having it. And, you know, I think there are people at the Justice Center who are trying to do positive work within their limited capacity to try to bring some alleviation of of concern for people inside. Denise Miranda acknowledges the shortcomings of the prison system's implementation of these solitary confinement changes, even if she's not holding press conferences to highlight the violations of law. In an ideal world, everyone would have the resources to effectuate HALT the way it was intended. But that does not reflect the reality for the workforce in the state right now. And so we have to be mindful that when we're having that conversation, that we're really looking at the totality of the circumstances, right, and the reality of what exists out there in terms of staffing and workforce. The idea of a work in progress is a theme that Miranda has used over the years to describe the Justice Center. But now, after 10 years of operations, including more than six years with her at the helm, she is looking to the future and is hoping to prioritize efforts to prevent abuse and neglect before it happens. The expression, we were building the plane and flying the plane, is one that is often used um, when talking about the Justice Center. You know, I now say the cake is baked, now we're icing it. Right. So the fundamentals are there. Operationally, we are sound. We have, you know, really created efficiencies with respect to processes. Um, we've identified staffing issues. We have uh, created offices where offices didn't exist. Now we need to look at the quality of our work. Right. And so focusing on quality, uh, focusing on establishing uh, key performance indicators, making sure that we are working optimally is really where I would like to focus now in this next chapter of the Justice Center. And while she isn't asking for additional specific resources right now, at least not publicly, Miranda is interested in possibly expanding the Justice Center's capacity over the next decade to take on more investigations itself, as opposed to delegating a majority to the providers of care. She also says she is content with the criteria for adding employees to the staff exclusion list and declined to weigh in on potentially thorny issues like increasing cameras in residential settings and giving the state more authority to discipline direct care workers. Other stakeholders in the system are hoping the 10-year anniversary of the Justice Center this summer kicks off a more holistic examination, although based on the dearth of questions state lawmakers have had for the agency at recent budget hearings, such an appetite seems lacking in the legislature. Mike Alvaro, president and CEO of the Cerebral Palsy Association of New York State, laments that this complacency appears to extend to the direct care providers, too. 
there's nothing that we can do is sort of the general feeling right now. The Justice Center is there. And yes, I get the Justice Center is there and it's going to stay there and they're not going to go away. But our our legislators, I think, are, are a good opportunity for us to re-engage them in the conversation of where we are now, especially given our workforce shortages. And I also think that the Hochul administration offers us another opportunity. I really think it's an opportunity for Governor Hochul and her folks to to really take a look at the failed former administration policy of the Justice Center and think about how do we replace what was the bludgeon of the Justice Center for a problem that really requires more thoughtful reorganization of processes and priorities. I think we need to take a look to see what it is that the Justice Center originally was intended to do. Are they keeping people safer? Are they keeping bad actors out of the field? And if not, what is it that they need to do and how do they need to be structured to accomplish those goals? So what or who will prompt the next system-wide evaluation of the care provided to more than 1 million New Yorkers dealing with mental illness, intellectual and physical disabilities, a variety of addictions, and other personal challenges? Fifty years ago, changes in New York were largely driven by the reporting of Geraldo Rivera, and the overhaul a decade ago is primarily attributable to the Abused and Used series from the New York Times, which was led by the Grey Lady's Capitol Bureau chief at the time, Danny Hakem, who argues this is an area of focus that is chronically underreported. We live in an era, as you know, where there's fewer and fewer investigative reporters, there's fewer and fewer you know, newspapers doing investigative reporting. So it's frustrating. You know, our series really looked closely at New York, but you could do this, you know, in any state. You could do it in any country. It's not like it's a problem that's limited to New York. If you had unlimited resources, you'd be looking at the state of care and comparing the approaches in different states, problems of abuse in different states and different countries all the time. But that's obviously not happening. You know, I do have in mind to return to the topic at some point, and what I'd like to do in the future is, is potentially look beyond New York and see how this this issue, this challenge is, is dealt with in other places as well. And that concludes the Capitol Press Room's Justice for All series. This project is the product of more than two dozen on- and off-the-record interviews, as well as a review of primary documents, hours of testimony, and years of reporting. And while this has likely provided some insight into an historically opaque and complicated corner of state government, I will be the first to acknowledge there are a plethora of angles to this story that this series merely grazed or missed altogether. To the extent that we did capture history accurately, I need to specifically thank Clarence Sundrum and Beth Rulis for their time and insights, and shout out to Christine at the Justice Center for fielding all my background questions. If you enjoyed this deep dive, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to the series, and then spread the word about the Capitol Press Room via email or just when you're checking out at the grocery store. Until next time, podcast adjourned. I did a training for the investigators at the Justice Center a few years ago, and I know I dated myself when I told them, less Kojak, more Columbo.